coming up on this week's show. Conservation news making headlines around the world. We have been stealing the future from our children. Challenges of conservation and combating climate change are connected. Corruption is being created by wildlife crime. Speciesism is very much the same as racism or sexism. We must rethink our relationship with wildlife, the environment and each other. Join us as we uncover the innovative, unifying and urgent solutions we need to protect the planet from ourselves. This is the art of conservation. I'm Simon Borchard, and joining me once again as ever, Peter Borchard's joining us on Zoom, and Shannon's in studio with me. Welcome back, guys. Welcome Hello. back to you, straight out of the bush. I know, I know. It's still yeah, wonderful. Lucky I, can, one. I know, I can still smell rhino shit on my shoes. It's <laughs> <laughs> I'm so jealous. But, uh, I mean, what a lovely time to be up near Kruger. I mean, with all the rains of the last little while, it looks like an absolute paradise. I uh, mean, it's blisteringly hot. Well, I'm sure it must be. Yeah. I mean, one day, I think it was the Friday that I was up there, it was just knocking on the door 47 degrees Celsius, so that's about 120 Whoa. odd Fahrenheit. Wow. That is warm. You didn't and have your peppermint oil either, did you? I had nothing with me. Oh, I was totally underprepared scarves, for that heat. Nothing. So... But uh, it was just absolutely exquisite. And, of course, it's always such a privilege to go and see the guys at Kruger Park as well. So yeah, uh, you know, seeing all the teams there and managing to, to spend some time in the park was always wonderful. And it's looking wonderful. But I do want to say this, is that if you are able to travel at the moment, even domestically, please support your parks, your national parks, your game reserves, whether you're in the UK, USA, South Africa, anywhere you can, please, um, you know, post the pandemic, the effects of zero tourism are really, really evident. And, well, no tourism, should I say, are really, really evident. And uh, Skakuza, the main camp in Kruger over this last weekend, was practically a ghost town. And conservation needs tourism dollars. So if there is any way you can get out into nature wherever you live, please do so. It's it's getting pretty critical out there that you that you get involved. Um, but it was wonderful. Had some fantastic sightings. Uh, saw some big hornbills, some thunderbirds. Peter, nice. uh, thought of you. Um, four thunderbirds on the wing. We flew over them in a chopper and just tracked them for a couple of miles, which was really really special. You don't often see them on the wing and you don't really see them from the top either so that was that was a really really special sighting from the air no they're pretty they're pretty massive birds aren't they sheep is they're massive they really really are big what are they called I don't know. I, I, just, I just call them thunderbirds the ground hornbills what's that dad ground hornbills yeah. Is that the one that was over here by the fence that was posted? No, no, no. That was no. a sacred ibis. Oh, oh right. No, okay. ground, ground hornbill. I'm not sure if they're endangered, but they certainly are threatened and very rare. Um, no, they, they are threatened. Um, and EWT has had a, um, a big program with yeah. hornbills for many, many years and successful too. Yeah. And they are, they're bizarre looking birds. They're quite prehistoric. Um, someone asked me the other day, what do they look like? And I said, almost Im imagine a turkey that took too many steroids. You know, they're these weird sort of like puffed up. I think they're awesome. I think they're stunning looking. At they are. And they've got the most beautiful eyes. Yes. Yes. So seeing them, and uh, I think the count in the end was that we saw six um, oh, that's from the air. So that was really, really special. Um, and managed to see some lion, a lot of leopard, which was great because I haven't seen leopard in a while. So that was really special. Yeah, me neither. Uh, and they're big and they're fat and they're healthy. With tall grasses, I'm surprised you were able to see them. Well, I mean, that's the thing. So your, your game viewing goes down, yeah. but uh, they also get quite brave. So it's this weird mixture. Hmm. So especially when you drive up the central and northern parts of Kruger National Park at the moment, because there's been so little traffic, mm. is that the animals have used the roads as their highways and byways. So it makes it a lot easier to track them. Uh, and yeah, you, know, you okay. can pick up on the fresh dung, you can see movement, you can see herd movement, etc. So And they could just take one step off and they're hidden, so they'll be closer than when we were out there, they might be a mile away because that's the nearest thicket they can hide in or something. Yeah. So okay. there were a couple of sightings of leopard where they just walked out in, in front of us. 
uh, which was really, so really cool. special. And actually, as I think of it, three of the four leopard sightings were actually on the road. Wow. So it was maybe yeah, some special stuff. Huh. I'm surprised the road at that, that time of year wasn't too hot for them. No, I think they've got such thick paddies there. I mean, laying on the road. Usually an animal lay on the road if it's cool out and they want to warm up. But it was so hot, I'm surprised they even did that. I the dirt tracks as well, which was... Oh, as a dirt. And what was really cool, I mean, this is just a a sort of personal anecdote. What was really nice, though, was that I I befriended a fantastic tracker, um, Moses, Moses and Michael. And I was staying at Kapama because it was just in... Uh, in good distance of the meetings I had to take for the foundation and uh, went out with them several times and that was fantastic and Mm. I learned how to track a lion with a limp which I hadn't seen before a lion with a limp yeah how do you know when there is a lion with a limp nearby (laughs) on on Kapama there's uh, a lioness who's the the dominant lioness of one of the northern prides called Stikinyao Uh um, which means uh, the one that limps so when we were tracking her, we were tracking the pride. Um, we could see it in the, we could see it in the dirt, and I was like, "That looks odd. What is she doing? Is she turning? Is she, you know, is she running? Is she starting to accelerate?" And they go, "No, that's that's sticking now. That's well, the, one the, the one that print is deeper than the other." Well, it turns in a little bit, so her back oh. right turns in a little bit and kicks on the outside. So when you see her, it doesn't look like it doesn't look that evident. Okay. But when you see her, her fresh marks, it's really, really evident. Um, and then I got a lovely photograph of Stikinya uh, Madoda, which is the male that travels with her, mm. and he um, he's a one he's a big boy key as well. He's a big, big male. He's a lovely, lovely sighting. Mm. Uh, but he's blind. He's lost his right eye. Uh, through a territorial fight with what is believed to be his three younger sons that have moved south and formed a coalition. Is he blind in both eyes? No, no, no. I mean, his, his left eye. eye is perfectly perfect. Oh, okay. But his right eye is completely lost. Oh, and he's just this Yeah, that's big, the photo oh, you that, showed that's me. That's the shot I, I oh, shared with you guys. We yeah. should blow that up. It's yeah. beautiful. We should actually take some of these photos at some point and make them available for people to buy and blow up you know, or we blow them up and send them to people. You sign them and, and use it. Um, oh I don't know if I'm good enough. I think, I, I, I think, think I've got a lot more practice to do. To be I think to. that's not up to you. I think that's <laughs> up to them to decide if they want to buy one or not. Okay. Here's, here's the deal. I'll put up a print of sticking on my daughter. I'll put him up on the site, on the show notes. And if you want to buy one, then I will make sure that every cent goes to the Shan Elizabeth Foundation. How's that? Woohoo! Yay! Deal. Thank you. Let's see. So there's an ex- so there's an experiment. I'll feel like I'm a, a, <laughs> a you commercial photographer. But the you can't price it out. Money. So you're like, look, nobody bought it, and you made it like a thousand dollars. You know? No, no. I I don't know. You guys can make me an offer. I don't know. But we have to figure out how to like get it printed, probably. In the U.S. to send if somebody's from the U.S. It doesn't matter. Or in the U.K. or wherever you are in the world, I will build it into the price. We'll figure something out. Okay, it's a good little experiment. I like it. Little experiment. So please make me feel good if you're listening to this. (laughs) Um, Please make me feel good. You're doing it for charity. Yeah. Uh, And then we'll do more of them. And then you'll have to explain why you have a crappy photograph in your house. No, <laughs> it's a beautiful photograph. I mean, no, I, I, look, I saw it on your phone. I haven't seen it blown yeah. up to see the quality if it's pin sharp, but I assume it is. Yeah, no, it, it's pin sharp. It's one of the better photographs. It's definite, definitely one of the better portrait shots I've taken in a very long time. So Cool, then I'll, um, I'll buy one. I'm quite and, chuffed. And you must <laughs> sign it. Okay. Okay. Isn't well, I'll, I'll let David uh, Yarrow and um, uh, De- um, uh, Daryl Balfour. Who? And, and, We've got um, Simon Borchard here. <laughs> no, that's all right. And, and a whole lot of other professional wildlife photographers. I'll let them know that you're hot on their heels there. Yes. So, <laughs> my gosh. Um, they better look to their laurels. <laughs> no, I think the only time that... Uh, you know, that I'm, my name is in the same sentence as theirs is when I tag them in a post going, I love your work. But, uh, well, or when we, we do an art showing with art of conservation and then everybody can have their photographs in it. 
This is true. This yeah. is true. So, yeah, there's some good stuff coming on that. Yeah. Um, so we shall. So now you can have a shot in it. I'll have a shot in mm. it. Peter must have a shot in it. There's, I mean, it's funny that the names that you mentioned there, Peter, though, because it, it is a discussion I want to have, and maybe if we have time today, I want to circle back to it, is the ethics in wildlife photography. Um, Ooh, a that's very, a big discussion. I know it's a big discussion. <laughs> I'm and tired I know it's already. It's not slated for today, <laughs> but it's something I definitely want to talk about because there've been some. Well, I, I think you should. I think you should wait until head. you can get a couple of the guys on the program. I was just going to say, yeah, let's do that. Because they all have slightly different takes on it as what's yeah. okay and what's yeah. not. That's and, a great uh, idea. I think you'd have a very very interesting discussion. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Let's yeah, do that. Um, yeah, let's do that. I think that could be great fun. Okay. okay but moving on to some, uh, I don't know, the latest stuff from around the world. Peter, you always seem to be on the mark with your editorials. Um, <laughs> he said he didn't want to start with that. No, though. but um, I'm just going to say he's starting with it. So much. I mean, we try, Peter, we try. No, but, but I think the topic of what you're talking about is, is probably the most valuable discussion at the moment because it really talks about the economics of sustainability and the fact that um, you know doing good means that you do well and it's a discussion that I think is maturing and growing in multiple circles whether we're looking at reinvigorating or, or redefining a conservation economy after the lessons learned from the impact of COVID but the impact of climate change the impact of COVID the impact of uh, fossils, etc. Everything is having this major impact on saying, should we not be doing right by the planet as a course of business, not just as a course of philanthropy and the distribution of profit? And uh, yeah, I, I think your your editorial, like it usually does, is going to cause some discussion. Well, uh, I hope so. And, you know, while you've been gallivanting around the bush, <laughs> I've been sitting at home home grappling with really sort of grumpy issues like climate change and poverty and all those sort of things. Mm. But, you know, you're right. And um, I think the, the title of my piece is, I, I think, a very good one, and that is Making Peace with the World. And it's, they're not my words. They, and I'll explain a bit later. But, you know, as you were saying, Simon, if we look at the natural world, we get a lot back that's positive. But when we don't, we still get a lot back, but in ways that make our lives a little less comfortable. You know, that's where we get the wildfires, the huge city flattening storms, floods, heat waves, massive sub-zero weather cells, polar ice that gets thinner and thinner, and then, of course, zoonotic disease. And the thing is that we've known that these things have been happening for the past 50 years at least. And it all started with the meeting of nations in Stockholm in 1972. And that marked the start of a dialogue between rich industrialized countries and the developing world. And they explored the link between economic growth, pollution of the air, water and oceans and the well-being of people. And, you know, it, it seems in some ways um, impossible that this should have started 50 years ago. And we're still talking about it and we're still arguing about how we should do it. And there's still some people on the planet that say it's not happening at all. You know, so since then, despite all the dire warnings, we've just carried on abusing the planet. So, you know, why is it now that suddenly it seems that the global GDP fixated machine is finally taking notice? And to my mind, the answer is quite simple. It's COVID. Um, the pandemic struck quickly and silently, took sudden hold, not in the poor countries, but the rich ones of Europe, North America and the East. And I think, you know, this doesn't, doesn't make the personal tragedies of the victims and their families any less awful. But still, I have no doubt in my mind that had the disease predominantly taken hold in the only in the developing world, the rush to find a cure would have been a far less galvanizing event. And, you know, we wouldn't be talking about things like zoonotic diseases um, with such worry about not only what's going on now, but the, the future and the possibility of that happening again. And, you know, and certainly is, is the case that the burden of natural and human-induced disasters falls so disproportionately on the most vulnerable those living in extreme poverty. Mm. And it's always been this, or so I thought. Um, and what I found interesting was that when you look back over time, you know, we know that the record shows that only a small elite live in conditions of plenty and the vast majority live in a state of need. And, um, you know, I thought that was pretty well 
the same as it has been in the past. Um, and it seems like the whole world, other than the G20 nations, are absolutely mired in poverty. But if we dig a bit deeper, it does become apparent that great strides have been made. And, you know, from the Industrial Revolution, poverty has actually decreased steadily over the over two centuries. There was a blip from 1900 to the 1950s when population growth outstripped the decrease in poverty rates. But since then... Um, the drop in poverty rates is so steep that the absolute number of very poor people has begin to, begun to fall. And that trend is continuing. So, you know, in some ways we can regard that as one of humanity's outstanding achievements. But, um, yeah, but before we just, become Just to interrupt you there, sorry. Yes, yeah, sure. There's just a question there. When you say that poverty is is alleviating or reducing, are you talking about it as a percentage of global population or in population number? In the recent times, since about 1970, the decrease has been real. So it's decreasing in actual number of people that are in poverty and the percentage. So both have been declining. And that is that is has been the encouraging thing. What's the benchmark you know, of poverty? What's the metric? Well, uh, you know, that, X that's dollars that's, a month, or mm, what is it? Yeah, well, that that gets interesting because before we become too self-congratulatory, yeah, uh, the global extreme poverty rate fell to 9.2% in 2017 from 10% in the year before, and it's been dropping steadily in the years up to that. But as I said, that's still the equivalent of 689 million people living on less than $1.90 a day. Now, that is the measure of absolute poverty, extreme poverty, hunger, mm. um, having nothing. And, you know, it's, it's, it's such a small number. And... If we say, right, the, the, it seems that we've done a, um, a good job if only 9.2% or so are living on $1.90 a day. But sometimes what we don't really examine is that poverty doesn't magically disappear above that line. You know, after all, in, in 2017, we still had 24% of the world living on less than $3.20 a day. And a massive 43%, 46%, sorry, no, I got that figure wrong, 43.6%, nearly half the global population lives on less than $5.50 a day. And I mean, you know, that's the less than the cost of a Big Mac in much of the developed world. Mm. And, sure. you know, even the small gains that we've made, the big worry is now that COVID has caused or is causing a severe setback for the first time in a generation with the gains against poverty. Hmm. I, I agree. I'm not sure uh, if it's if it's time to celebrate just at the minute. I, th I think that there are some factors to that that I think would be quite interesting to understand. I mean, the first thought that comes to my mind is rate of population growth relative to these trends. I can't see that our population growth will allow for those reductions in poverty to be sustainable over the long term, given the long term effects of COVID, but given the the, the population growth stats, especially in places like um, Africa in particular, but subcontinent and South America as well. Yeah, that's, 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 that's fair comment. Um, and there's no doubt that even the small gains that we have made against uh, eradicating, uh, eradicating poverty have come alongside an appalling cost to the planet. And I think this is really what you're referring to, Simon, is that over the last 50 years, our human population has more than doubled. Mm. You know, in, in my lifetime, 70 years, it's nearly trebled. Sure. And the extraction of materials and the production of primary energy and food have all more than tripled. The global economy has grown nearly fivefold and trade has increased even tenfold. And all of that adds up to the fact that we will know, as the Living Planet Report tells us every second year, that we are living well beyond the ability of our, our planet to cope. And that's the real problem. So it, it's not one of just poverty. It's not, you know, and that's something that we've got to do something about. And, and certainly we do. Because as people become wealthier, 
so they can use resources more carefully. They don't have to live off the very meager resources of the natural world um, as, as we know it and add to that depletion and so on and so forth. Mm. Um, the moment you have uh, economic growth in, 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 in wealth, and wealth isn't always expressed in terms of money, but certainly when that happens, happens we know that birth rates come down, for example. Mm. And so the whole thing starts to, to, to change around. There is no doubt that for human beings to thrive, we have to learn to do so within the context of a thriving planet. And there's a there's a new wonderful report that's come out from um, the UNEP, and it's aptly uh, entitled "Making Peace with Nature." Hence the title of my piece this week. And it, it actually makes the statement that making peace with nature is indeed the defining task of the 21st century. That is the one thing that we have to do. We have to make peace with nature. Yeah. And all the big economic uh, gurus are beginning to say that. We're beginning to question the fact that we measure success in terms of GDP only. And what does that mean? Um, it's even re-looking at, at wealth, you know. And wealth, as I said earlier, is not just expressed in terms of, of, of monetary wealth, but it, in terms of the environment in which you live. Mm. So um, that's what Simon always says: return on environment instead of just return on investment. Right, that's exactly it. You know, I mean, we've been saying all these things for so many years, and it's like you know, been bashing your head against a brick wall. We've been so fixated on 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 greed and self interest that you know, I mean, that's the reason behind. Things like having made very little progress, well, not certainly not the progress we should have in terms of things such as as uh, climate change. Mm. Mm. Uh, one of the things that I think is going to be very, very difficult to defend is an argument, an economic argument in relation to the consumptive use of natural resources. In the UNEP report, does it talk about consumptive use or does it acknowledge I mean, yeah, it as part it, of the look, solution? It does. Or does it I say mean, it's that not you particularly can't... a wildlife uh, uh, discussion. It's it's more on the total environment. Um, but I, I do believe it, it has many practical lessons that we can learn from. And I do hope that people will read it, that businesses will read it, uh, leaders will read it, and they should, with it having the, the full weight of unit behind it. Yeah. But you know, but just before we move on, there was another report that I read, and uh, I haven't finished it yet. I mean, you know, the, the um, Making Peace with the Nature is a 160-odd is a pages report, and um, the one that I'm going to refer to now is another 100 pages. So I'm, I'm wading through them, but I'm finding as I wade through the one I'm going to talk about quickly now, I find it less of a, um, less of a burden to get through it all as to a wonderful awakening of um, the soul of economics, if you can ever think that economics has a soul. But um, the report I'm referring to is a review by um, um, a, a, a British Indian economist, economist by the name of Parthadas Gupta, and it really is a truly, truly remarkable review. And in the in the notes for today, I've included a um, a YouTube link to a discussion that he has um, on on uh, this whole question and I do urge people to watch it it is really really worth doing so but he said you know you know we understand that um that the responsibility for the things that we have to do lies with governments and business but the constant prompt prompting by civil society will be very crucial and each one of us will have to play our part in whatever way we can and this uh, um, Dasgupta, he points to this, and, and I'll read it because I think the words are, are very important. Ultimately, we each have to serve as the judge and jury for our own actions. So we've got to look at things and, and, and really say, why are we doing that? If we do something that's not bad, we've got to call ourselves on it. 
And he says that that cannot happen unless we develop an affection for nature and its processes. As that affection can flourish only if we each develop an appreciation of nature's workings, the monograph, the study that he's referring to, ends with a plea that our education systems should induce, introduce nature studies from the earliest stages of our lives and revisit them in the years we spend in secondary and tertiary education. The conclusion we should draw from this is unmistakable. If we care about our common future and the common future of our descendants, we should all in part be naturalists. Um, and I found those words, they just rang so true yeah. with me. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I think I definitely want to, to watch that. The other thing that happened this weekend, and I think it does come to this, so I'm gonna I'm gonna try my hand at something. I wasn't, I didn't want to do this on today's show, but I'm I'm gonna have a crack at it because I think it does talk to to your editorial somewhat, Peter. I was asked um, at the end of last week um, by a chap called Kevin, um, who sent me a message saying, "Why is the economic argument?" for the trade in rhino horn not a good one like wh what is the academics like don't give me examples what's the academics what's the the theory so while i've been traveling i've been looking at something where most of the big papers that argue for the trade in rhino horn in particular reference something called gresham's law and gresham's law is an economic uh, principle that was derived by Thomas Gresham in the 1500s, where he observed that if you had the same currency value, so say you had a, a two pence coin, for example, so the stated value of that coin was two pence, but if the metal used in one was less valuable than the other one, then the valuable coin, like the metal in the coin itself, would play a role and that the cheaper one would knock out the more expensive one. The argument being that it would be taken out of, out of cycle because it's easier to trade with the, uh, with the cheaper version because it doesn't have any other value than its stated value. So the argument for flooding the trade has been built out of Gresham's law of economics. Um, and so the idea is built around the notion which is still stated today that says bad money drives out good money. So in other words, if you have a volume of a cheaper product with a stated same value, it would drive out the more expensive version of that or the more valuable version of that. That's the argument. So I think where it doesn't play out, and these are my observations, but it's something that I would love to chat to someone like Ross Harvey about and a very well-respected economist out of South Africa who deals with this every day and has done multiple papers and his doctorate and all kinds of wonderful things on this. But where the law falls over is that the law doesn't talk to the value of that, say, that two pence coin. It doesn't talk to the value of the commodity on whether its value resides in exchange or whether the value resides in use. So the idea says is that rhino horn is consumptive. So you use the horn that you buy. And that's not where the growth of the rhino horn trade is. It's, it's in merely the possession of it, whether that's a, as a trinket or whether it's gifted in a, in a business deal or something of that nature. It's not a consumptive product the same way it was before. So the application of a consumptive model doesn't actually work. But it, but it is consumptive when they're using it in traditional Chinese medicine. When they're using it in, in traditional Chinese and medicine. And then I assume they are also adding the value that it brings once it's in the medicine because then you've, you've, it's add value when they sell it to the pharmacist or the, you know, what let's, let's go legal pharmacist. And then it's going to have more value when it's sold on as medicine, a fractional value because it'll be mixed with other stuff, but still more value. Right. So the, the, you've got to draw the distinction for Gresham's law 
to to be applicable. It doesn't talk to use value, which is what you're talking about, rather than exchange value, which is just the value of owning it. So what Gresham's law also says is that it doesn't reduce the value of the more expensive coin. It just takes the coin out of circulation, but its value effectively increases, but no one wants to trade it because they're hoarding it because its stated value is less. So what that means is, is that people would start to hold onto the coins. They start to hold onto the horn. It doesn't mean that that horn is gone. Right. They're just, just stockpiling it. It just means that it's stockpiled because it has greater value. So the idea of flooding a market and eliminating wild rhino with a fake rhino horn doesn't well, work. Well, I was just about to say, there's somewhere in there has to come into play, not just this is more expensive, this is less expensive, but this is real and this is fake. Well, that's the point. So it doesn't work on, on the expense because it's saying this is the same amount, mm. but it's saying that the fake rhino horn has less value than the wild rhino horn. And so you can flood it with a less valuable product okay, but and drive the price of the wild rhino horn down. That's the argument. Well, what about the, the fact that we know that people even now are selling buffalo horn as rhino horn? Exactly. And it's still a lesser product, but people don't know the difference. Yeah. So they're still paying the higher price thinking it's a real rhino horn. So there's a, there's already like stuff like that happening. Well, I think that that was the point for me is that no matter where you research it, there is not one single law that applies, one economic model that applies to it definitively to say we can risk the wild populations even further by creating this model. Or the other side of the same coin is to say, well, we can introduce this model and it will absolutely protect wild rhino. There just simply isn't enough information. And my point is, is that all of the applied economic models to trade aren't, uh, aren't, aren't uh, They're not free from corruption. <laughs> well, no, that's a totally separate issue. Uh, you can corrupt the system, but the syst if the system itself is flawed, you're corrupting a flawed system. And that's the point, is that the argument of Gresham's law in the application of creating a fake rhino horde trade to protect wild rhino is fundamentally flawed. It's economically flawed. So even if you had to corrupt it, you're corrupting a model that isn't going to work anyway. You know, we see it all around us. You know, piano keys used to be made from ivory. They're not anymore. They're made from plastic. And now we're looking for substitutes to plastic that are less harmful. We know, we know that um, in in Zulu ceremonial circumstances, uh, circles, that um, leopard skins are very important as, a, as an indication of status. And, you know, there's, there's been success there in terms of providing uh, so-called fake skins instead that look very yeah. much like the original. Yeah. You know, we, we do this all along the, all along the way. But I, don't, so I think that I, there I, is a big difference, though, is because the horn is consumptive. So within Shannon's point of traditional Chinese medicine, the horn is consumptive. So it's it's a com it's it's totally commodity. Yeah, whereas but, but the skins there I would are not. Say, you know, I was um, I'd, I'd just like to butt in there because you know um, I'm you know, I try to read as much as I can around all of this, and a lot of the thinking now in terms of trade bans and so on. Um, especially when one gets a sense perhaps that trade bans aren't working, um, that instead of trade bans, one look, has to look at selective, persuasive things. So you, you don't just say out with it altogether. You take the market because the market that's using it for medicine is different from the Vietnamese market um, where it's been used as, a, as a, a, a symbol of status and so on and so forth. So what you really do have to do is to look at demand reduction uh, strategies that focus on very specific things. So what would it require for Chinese medicine not to use rhino horn? Now, first of all, it would be legislation, and I think that legislation is there. So what we're looking at now, because it's not a product in the uh, pharmacopoeia of Chinese medicine anymore, but it's still going into under the lap black market and so on and so forth. So there you're working on things like um, greater policing, um, 
proper sentences for those that are found guilty and so on and so forth. So it, it, it's, it's an amazingly intricate um, subject. And I, I, I do think that the, that the, the black and white, look, I have to say that I am totally against trade in, in rhino horn, as I think we all are individually and as a, as a, a foundation. But that doesn't mean to say that we're not prepared to enter into the discussions and that is very important because the more you have these discussions, the more the nuances come out and you see whether there isn't room for a meeting on that particular aspect rather than an, an absolute I'm against you for and there's no ways that we can meet in the middle. So I think these are very, very important things to explore. And um, again, you know, it's time that we we had the professionals in to, to chat to us about them. My worry is, is that when we say, right, we are going to trade, we are already being criticized in Southern Africa of sending dual messaging into, into the East that says, no, it has no value. You, you mustn't use it unless you buy it from me, in which case then it's fine to trade. Um, and it's fine we, if you we come substantiate its one, value. Sorry, say that again, please. It's, it's, it's fine if you want to come here and shoot one. You can do it that way around if you want to. Yeah, I mean, that's another one. But let's let's yeah. just stay in, in topic here. Otherwise, we can go down about 15 rabbit holes on that one. But my, my point is this, is that when we say there is no medicinal value in rhino horn, um, hands off our rhino horn, don't touch our, our rhinos, leave them alone in the wild. The moment we start trading, what we're effectively saying is that the product has value. And that product is perceived to have medicinal value. So therefore, that's substantiated. So therefore, why would the auspices that control much of traditional Chinese medicine continue with their banned consumption of rhino horn when those selling it are saying, by all means, take it, use it? John Hume, for example, has, is on record as saying that he doesn't care who buys his rhino horn for what reason. And I think that that is reckless, absolutely reckless, because... The moment we legitimize the trade, we legitimize and we validate its intended use, which undermines demand reduction strategies of saying don't use it because it doesn't work. Yeah. I think we end up on a very, very slippery slope, and there is no economic model that I've been exposed to as yet that caters for that. And that's something that I still need answered. So for me, staying away from just the pure argument of please don't hurt our rhinos, I don't believe that there is enough information on the table to say that economically the trade in rhino horn is a good idea. I, I have something um, that's kind of uh, – it kind of goes to some of, some of what Peter was talking about earlier. Um, and this is – out of Maguire University, Sydney, Australia, um, and in, it's entitled In Conservation Parks, Money Matters If Species Are to Survive. And it's a study that they did, um, and they've identified a pressing need to increase funding for conservation parks in Southeast Asia to avoid further extinction of danger, endangered animals. Um so basically, conservation scientist Victoria Graham and her colleagues have looked at what factors are linked to successes and failures to understand how more parks can function successfully. And they, they expose the key role of adequate funding and staffing in protecting animals um, and how important this is for success of the parks. Uh, this is urgent work. The area of land set aside to conserve nature over the past 40 years has tripled, but biodiversity continues to decline, she says. Our study shows that until funding increases for Southeast Asian parks, rhinos along with tigers, elephants, and orangutans will continue to disappear. And to understand what's going right or wrong, the researchers examine the relationship between management effectiveness and conservation success using the Management Effectiveness Tracking Tool, MET, M-E-T-T, and trends of 79 populations of mammals and birds in 12 Southeast Asian protected areas from Cambodia, Indonesia, Thailand, and Vietnam. And they built a predictive model that links population trends 
to management resourcing. Um, and then th there's the size of the park and there's some other things that um, could come into play. And then there's corruption that comes into play as well. Um, and that can really uh, affect whether the park is successful or not. Corruption can undermine law enforcement and lead to doubt about whether conservation spending will have any real lasting impact. They found that the, despite the negative influence of corruption, there is evidence that providing adequate financial and human resourcing is an important determinant in whether good biodiversity outcomes can be achieved. Management resourcing, government transparency, and body mass of animals explain 29% of the variation in animal population trends in their model. The level of funding for protection is key to park safety. Protection from habitat loss, poaching, and other threats is not guaranteed without adequate investment in the management. Um, and their, their work is to provide evidence of in inadequate funding leading to poor conservation outcomes for parks. Um, and it's relevant to international funding agencies, governments, and NGOs to aid decision-making around the allocation of limited conservation resources. Building a stronger evidence base fosters investor confidence and may ultimately lead to greater financial support for conservation in regions where support is urgently needed. I mean, we, we had talked earlier about, you know, this, the, the communities around the parks being inclusive and a lot of the, the rangers and people working in the parks come from those communities as well. But I think I'm not, I'm not putting down this, this article at all, let alone the research behind it. There are people far cleverer than me behind all of this. But the statement is something that we know. We need to give more land, more resources to protect animals. And here's another list of reasons No, no, why. but I think that was their point. It's, it's we've gotten the more land, but why are the population still in a decline? So why, why do we, we have protected more land, they're saying. There is a model saying we've protected this percentage more, but yeah. there's still a decline happening. Because why is the resources. that? Yeah, was that How do you get the resources? That's, yeah. The question for me in conservation is we know if, if we need more land. And if we have more land, we need more people to look after it. That's the upliftment opportunity. But how do you generate revenue out of that land? And that's that's the question for me. And 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 like I said, I don't mean to um, to put anybody who's who's written or participated in this piece or the research down in the slightest. My my question is a is is a progression, is to say, okay, so you're under resourced. What what do we do about it? How do you how do you get the resources you need to do what you know is working? Because there's a lot of stuff that's working, and what is working is not really the problem. It's getting them the resources. And I'm hellbent. It's kind of going back to your opening statement, Peter, is you know, about your editorial talking about the economics of conservation. We, we've got to reinvigorate a conservation economy model that isn't exclusively reliant on uh, tourism dollar and wealthy philanthropy, whether it be corporate or private. Like I, I, I get quite, yeah, well, I get you know, quite it, urgent. I get quite desperate. Mm. But, you know, it starts to happen. I mean, that's really what we are talking about. And we, we are saying that to get things right, we have to, have to, have to take account of natural capital. You know, that's what we don't do or haven't done. So you can go and take what you like from the earth because it's free. And getting back to your point, um, Shannon, you know, if something's free, you just take it and you abuse it. You don't regard it as anything worthwhile. All of a sudden we're saying, hang on a minute. That's a very finite resource that you're talking about. And in our calculations, we have to take into account the natural assets of the planet. And when you do that, the economics start to look very, very different. But I agree with you, Simon, you know, because yesterday, Shannon and I were on an international um, a ranger foundation discussion around parks and um, financing and so on. And one of the suggestions, the observations, which is absolutely true, is that if we create more rangers in in those areas, as a percentage, those rangers' salaries become more and more important because they look after more and more people. So if that is being if the rangers are being properly paid in salary, 
then it's an enormous asset and you become the 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 park or whatever becomes a a a really major employee employer in that that area but as one chap from nepal said you know you're saying well yeah well, let's let's put in another 500,000 rangers into into nepal and he said it would solve the problem but it ain't going to happen and i think that's something that we look at in africa and say we know the we know the the, the current thinking of of um consideration for natural asset value and so on but how on earth are we going to make it happen and that's the bit that i don't see really is how we encourage people to invest in the natural assets and to help provide funding for all of these things to happen i mean i think um, i i think her point in in really looking over some of it again is also that what we've sorry, kind of all point uh, Victoria, the scientist, the researcher in this article. Okay. Um, sorry, because I want to make this point that she's talking about, and we've said it before too, what works is boots on the ground. And that's what we're talking mm. about when we're talking about rangers. So they, because we're protecting more areas, take Kruger, for example, you don't have enough men to cover every little inch of the park because the park is so big. And some of the examples they've given of areas like in Vietnam and Thailand where they used to have Javan or Sumatran rhino, the, the, the park, the rangers that were there said, saying, look, we can't cover all of this area because we just, there's not enough of us. We can't actually physically cover it. So maybe I think her point is rather than putting resources into things potentially like I'll just use the example of technology drones things like that maybe that same money goes into staff more of a staff more of rangers on the ground boots on the ground that puts money in those surrounding communities it speaks to a lot of these different areas because we've always said nothing replaces boots on the ground at the end of the day 100% agree I'd I think just to to go back because I want to frame up that uh, forum that you guys were were on. Just to let our, our listeners know, there's a wonderful international ranger forum um, that we're very privileged to participate on, and it comprises some of the leading ranger organisations around the world: International Ranger Federation, uh, International Anti Poaching Federation Foundation. Uh, lead ranger thin green line thin green line gwc, well, GWC. global wildlife conservation mm. the list is is literally the who's who of uh, of ranger management and and ranger issues around the world and there really isn't a forum that talks with more education more awareness and more experience about these issues than that forum yeah and we yeah just take the opportunity to celebrate what they're doing but to come back to the to the issue at hand is that i'm i'm the guy that people get irritated with when we get to these discussions because it's we need more boots on the ground you know instead of buying drones let's just put boots on the ground cool who's going to pay for it the problem is i believe is that we're at a point where we have corroded the viability whether it be corruption or otherwise the viability of creating short-term success in conservation economies. The COVID has ripped apart tourism and it has ripped apart tax bases in countries. So not only are there less people coming to give of their tourism dollar, which goes into conservation, which goes to funding and hiring these individuals, these valuable, valuable rangers, but the governments are receiving less tax, less trade, their GDPs are slipping as a result. So there's less coming in from a state perspective. So I think we've got to be really brutal with ourselves and ask the question, how? Okay, so we know what we have to do. How are we going to get more boots on the ground? And we go, well, we're going to hire from the local community. How? Well, How do I we think, pay for these things? I think the idea of this particular study was to help NGOs and governments um, guide their donors to putting money towards these resource, resources versus other. I, I appreciate that. But I think that that is, dare I say, a thin blanket on a cold night. I think that we've, we've got to grow the amount of land protected. And 
if we were sitting in the position where all of the donor funding, the state funding, the tourism funding was sufficient to manage the status quo and we were having a growth discussion saying we've protected 25% of the planet just as a number out of my head um, and that's stable. It's economically stable. Everyone's being paid. We've got critical mass of staff, of people, of rangers, of scientists. We're good to go. Now we want to grow it. Mm -hmm. Philanthropists, we need more because this is what we can do. We can't look after what we currently have. Right. And we're having a discussion about we need to protect more. Or you're saying we need to, yeah, we need to buy more land to protect, but we can't protect what we have now. Exactly. So yeah. what is the model? We can't rely on philanthropy. Um, I, I, it's not no, a business I mean, model. You, right. You need a business model. Right. And then that's where I think that, and I, I, I get criticized for it, but I'm not going to back from the point of a conservation economy. Because in my, in my little mind, that that is the most encompassing phrase that I can think of to say, how do we protect land through the upliftment of people in a sustainable manner? And that is ecologically, socially, and financially. How, how, that's the question. I'm not saying I have the answer. I'm just saying that's, that's the question. Well, and I, think, I don't think people would argue that the big nonprofits that are very successful function like a business. You have yeah, to be, you know, and you can have for profit to fund nonprofit. And I think in this day and age, in the size numbers mm -hmm. that we need to do the work that we need to do, we have to do stuff like that. Yeah. Perhaps it's, uh, it's somewhere in the sort of the confluence of an evolved donor and an evolved NGO. Perhaps the discussion can start there over what constitutes a return on philanthropic investment. What constitutes a return on donation? There's a term, return on donation. I've never heard that before. Well, also, I mean, why is it that nonprofits have to be the ones to do work? That's real work. That's hard work. Why does it have to be only nonprofits doing that work? Why can't for-profits be doing that work? Because people still need to get paid. Work still needs to be done. Things still need to be bought. Mm. It's exactly the same. Well, I, that's a, it's such a great point that you bring it on that because if we take certain sectors and it stays within this range of discussion, I won't run out of fingers on one hand the number of anti-poaching NGOs right. that are even remotely legitimate. Right. The, the moment I hear we're a anti-poaching NGO, I'm out. Yeah, but it's like why? Just be an anti-poaching unit that people it's, hire – yeah. And, and you go do your job. 100%. You yeah. look at the guys that are successful on the ground. They are for-profit security yeah. companies that have expertise in anti-poaching. Yeah. It's not this NGO bastardized space where anti-poaching has probably done one of – those sort of anti-poaching NGO space has done one of the biggest disservices to legitimate range organizations and legitimate conservation on the ground. Yeah. Donations yeah. are transactions. They're one-way streets. So there is no return on donation. The return on donation is the good, warm, fuzzy feeling you get when you give. Build your legacy. And you get a certificate that says, I have to pay less tax as a result of this donation. Right. That's the return on, on donation currently. And I think we've got to change that. We've got to change the discussion and to hold ourselves accountable to the work that we promise to do. But I mean, we're talking a lot about um, you know, different economic models and so on. But I, th I, I want to get back to something today, which is more just about conservation methodologies and sciences on the ground. Because I think we can like, you know, argue the, the, the economics of what we're trying to achieve here a lot. And I, I, maybe if I can just try and summarize what I think we all believe, which is – you, we better. We need to better support people on the ground, and one of the ways to do that is to figure out an evolved and a more sustainable and a more robust um, conservation model that includes new revenue streams, so that we can hire new people to do new work uh, and to bring business and philanthropy into it, and talk about a conservation economy again. Just you know, my word. But one of the cool things that I've been watching in the last little while is that I'm quite taken with the idea of the amount of technology that comes into conservation. And it's pretty cool. And one of the things, we had a story, I don't know if you guys remember, a couple of months back, uh, a piece on bioacoustics. So how 
scientists in South America are using audio tracks, recorded audio tracks of a of an area, and then they're able to discern the ecological health of that area. You know, sort of based on the on the species heard mm. and the frequency and the volumes, etc. Well, there is a similar thing coming out of. Um, out of uh, Pantera or Panthera, the international NGO that have been working on anti-poaching patrols in Guatemala and Honduras. And they've developed this system um, and have been using it since 2017. But the idea says, and Mongo Bay ran the story just a couple of days ago, is that electronic ears spy on poachers in a Central American jaguar habitat. And what they're doing is that they're putting up microphones and so on, and these acoustical recordings can pick up gunshots, conversations and wildlife sounds so we all know if you're driving through kruger one of the best ways to know where the predators are is to listen to the vervet monkeys or to you know, listen to the impalas and you can hear all those warning calls when a predator or something is close by a threat is close by so they're kind of doing the um you know the biomimicry version of that is just listening and picking up on these warning signals of what people are doing in the area and i mean panthera as you know is one of the biggest and leading organizations looking at the protection of big cats and they say that they're particularly concerned about protecting the jaguar which is threatened through poaching wildlife trafficking habitat loss etc and so by being able to have these acoustic recordings they can one pick up evidence conversations etc but they can also pick up where there's a threat and it's not dissimilar to the um i think that the term that they gave it back in the day i've got to i've got to remember it now i think it was um sonic triangulation where in parts of kruger there's a mobile solution that has three microphones that can pick up a gunshot for example and through acoustic triangulation be able to pinpoint where the gunshot came from so that they would then be able to mobilize reaction units. Uh, I think it's pretty cool. I like the idea of using technology to better protect and better serve animals and it's being used around the world to great effect. So I think that, Shan, what you were saying earlier about getting companies involved, sonar companies, microphone companies, we're talking into road microphones now, like there is a really cool opportunity for them to collaborate with scientists to develop research so there's so many parallels that if we just look away from the idea of, or oh, here is a philanthropic donation, that there are other ways that people can be involved in it. And technology maybe is one of those cool ways to do it. Yeah, I guess it works when companies that exist are getting involved and in donating their time or technology or working in tandem. It's, it, and in ways it goes against what we were saying earlier, as far as people putting money into Things, and we even use the example of technology and perhaps money should go into the boots on the ground rather than technology. So it seems like such a catch-22 sometimes. <laughs> and we find ourselves almost like sounding like we're contradicting ourselves. Yeah, right? exactly. This is what we said earlier and now we're falling into the trap of saying something else. Yeah. Um, I don't think we're wrong to do that. I think it just shows the complexity of it, that there isn't a silver bullet and there isn't just one solution yeah. that we've got to look at it more more holistically. What I found quite interesting, Simon, just listening to you talk about the triangulation, was that I remember reading that story, or oh, it must have been five or six years ago, and there it was the, the technology was coming from a system that the police in Chicago had put in, in uh, place. And it was based on the same sort of thing. So, you know, Friday night, somewhere or somewhere in the town, there would be a gunfight. And then they'd get a little old lady come phoning the police station saying, look, I heard a shot, etc." And they'll say, where? And she says, oh, well, I think it came down from the end of the street there, but she's not quite sure. Mm. So they spend an awful lot of time trying to get to the place and work out where the shot might have, have happened. So they put this triangulation thing in. And the moment that gun was fired in the police house, they had an instant picture of exactly where that place was. And they could go in with speed and uh, deal with the situation. And I guess there are lots of things that are happening in crime and in, um, in warfare, in, in uh, weaponry that we need to take into the, um, the conservation arena where we're using that technology to protect animals rather than urban situations. 
No, I think it's I think it's a very interesting topic, and I think that conservation worldwide is going to come to rely very very heavily on that kind of top technology. Yeah, <laughs> on the one hand, it's like what Shan just said. Now you know that sounds it almost sounds like we're contradicting ourselves. And earlier yeah. in the show, you were talking about, and in previous episodes, we've spoken about it's a kind of demilitarizing conservation. But now we're saying, well, we need their tech, mm-hmm. and. Well, yes, that's exactly it. We need their tech. We don't need more guys with with guns per se. It's so complicated. Anyway, we'll we'll keep an eye on that as we do with with everything for you. If you have any questions or you have any comments about the show, please reach out to us at info at artofconservation.com. Follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, and uh, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, reviews are the currency that keep podcasts like ours going. So please make sure you drop us a line as you can. And thank you for the support. Thanks so much and chat again next week. Bye. We must rethink our relationship with wildlife, the environment, and each other. Join us as we uncover the innovative, unifying, and urgent solutions we need to protect the planet from ourselves. This is the art of conservation. Conservation.